let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We can mock God today. We can laugh at His holy standards. We can parade our sin on our movie and television and internet screens. But God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall reap. And God plainly says the marriage bed is not to be defiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will indeed judge. Adultery matters to God. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, Confronting Hypocrisy, in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John, we move into chapter 8 today, where Jesus has an encounter with a crowd who is ready to stone a woman caught in the act of adultery. As Pastor Carl will share, the crowd that is ready to condemn this woman for breaking the law is as guilty as she, and it too is deserving of death. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please, would you, and turn to John chapter 8. This morning we began a brand new chapter in our study of the Gospel of John that we began last August. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the theme of John's Gospel? Well, if you've been here for the entire time, I hope you'd be able to answer. I hope you'd be able to say the theme of this gospel is to present Jesus as the Christ, that is God in a human body, and that believing in Him, you might find life in His name. I hope you've put that in the front of your mind. If you can get it in your head, as one man says, you've got it in a nutshell, all right? The key to understanding this gospel is that Jesus is God in a body and that by believing in Him, you can have new life. And so John's continuous theme is to present Jesus Christ. Now I say that because the verses that we are about to read are not simply about a woman caught in adultery. It's the story of Jesus Christ. It's not the story simply of Nicodemus, a man who comes to Jesus Christ by night. It's the story of Jesus Christ, the life giver of a new birth. It's not simply the story of a woman at a well, a woman who had been married five times. It's the story of Jesus Christ who is living water. It's not simply the record of the nobleman's son or the miracle at Cana or the man paralyzed for some 38 years. It's all about Christ. He is the one who is on every page of this gospel. Now, I know many are walking in here for the very first time, so let me put our text in its context. If you remember, chapters 7 and 8 take place around what chapter 7 and verse 2 refers to as the Feast of Booths. There were six feasts that God prescribed for the nation of Israel, three of which every Jewish male 20 years and up were required to tend each year. Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles are called booths. Took place in the September-October time frame. And each feast was a reminder of God's faithfulness. It looked back, it looked at the present, and it looked at the future. The feast of booths looked back at God's faithfulness during the 40 years of wandering. If you remember, God had promised they could go into the land, but in unbelief, they took the testimony of 10 spies instead of the testimony of the two men, Joshua and Caleb, 
And they said, it cannot be done. And because of their unbelief, God chastised his people. And for 40 years, they wandered and lived in booths and tents. And, and so once a year, for seven days, they would live in these booths. And it was a reminder of how God had taken care of them those 40 years. But it was also a reminder of the present. It's also called in the scripture, the Feast of Ingathering how God had provided for the harvest because this took place during harvest time. And it also looked to the future, to the time when Messiah would come, when God's promised Redeemer would come to the nation of Israel. And so this is kind of a holiday that is like Independence Day. And it's like the 4th of July and Thanksgiving all wrapped up in one. Now, if you remember, it was during this time that the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to get the Lord Jesus. They had already put it in their mind about a year and six months before. They had fixed it in their mind that because he had healed a man on the Sabbath, you read of it in chapter 5, that they are going to kill him. Well, they saw an opportunity at this feast. And so they commissioned their own temple police to go and arrest Jesus. They come back with a remarkable testimony as they hear him preach, they come back empty-handed saying, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. They're absolutely awed by him. They're arrested in their own thinking where they can't arrest him. So when that doesn't work, they go to plan B. And that's where we pick up our text this morning. Begin reading with me chapter 7 and verse 53 as we begin on the subject of confronting hypocrisy. And everyone went to his home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard this, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone in the woman where she was in the midst. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. Now, I want to begin with a very important introduction this morning because beginning in chapter 7 and verse 53 all the way through chapter 8 and verse 11, there's been a lot of ink spilt to try to prove that this was not a part of the original Bible, that God the Holy Spirit did not inspire this portion of Scripture. Now, I believe it's part of the inspired Holy Word of God, but the reason there is some debate is because it's not contained in some of the older manuscripts that we have. We don't have the originals. We have copies of the originals. Now, those who deny the inerrancy of the Bible do not do it on passages like this. There are a handful of places in the Bible that people debate over, and typically 
Those verses that are in debate in one section are usually brought out and said very clearly in another section. And the verses that are up for question in some people's minds have absolutely nothing to do with doctrine or life or practice as we know it because of the rest of the New Testament. But those who deny the inerrancy of the Bible don't do on the basis of the manuscripts we have today, but on the basis of the original manuscripts that we don't have. They argue that because the Bible was written by fallen, sinful men, that their own biases and sinful ways bled through the pages of Scripture. And so they, some say that while the Bible is inspired, it is not without error. I don't believe that for one moment. I believe as Jesus thought that every single word down to the smallest jot and tittle, the crossing of a T and the dot even an I, was sovereignly, supernaturally inspired by God. And I believe in the preservation of Scripture, that God superintended His care for the Word of God. Now, if you have the New American Standard, it's in brackets, and they do that out of integrity, because when the New American Standard was done, unlike when the King James was finished, they had some manuscripts where it was not, they had manuscripts where it was not contained. When the King James was done in the 1611, we had no manuscripts where it was not contained. Since then, we have found literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts. And by the way, it's not all in yet. We're still finding manuscripts. If you have a commentary that is a good commentary written after the year 2000, they're going to indicate that even since 2000, we found a third century manuscript that fully contained this portion of Scripture. But some of the liberals typically will attack it. And if you go into a Christian bookstore, you may uh, open a commentary and find that they go from 752 to 812 and they don't even address these verses. Some because they're uncertain in their own thinking and others because they have a liberal slant. Well, I believe that this is totally inspired and I want to give you seven reasons by way of introduction before we dig into the text. Seven reasons why I believe that this is a part of the canon of Scripture. Number one, the flow of the eighth chapter demands it. It fits into the flow of the gospel. Christ, in chapter 7, if you remember, is in the temple. And so when this event takes place in chapter 8, he's still in the temple. The incident of this woman caught in adultery, in many ways, is a beautiful illustration of what he said in 724, of judging with righteous judgment, and of what he's going to state in chapter 8 and verse 15. In addition, next time, when we come to verse 12, immediately following this paragraph, when he will say, I am the light of the world, you will see how that statement perfectly dovetails with this particular incident. And so it really parallels what's happening in the 8th chapter. The chapter opens with people wanting to stone a sinful woman, and it closes with people wanting to stone the sinless Son of God. To go from 752 to 812 is to make a very abrupt transition, and it really doesn't fit the flow. So number one, it fits the flow of the argument. Number two, it's cited by sources outside of the Bible as having been inspired. There's a work, third, mid-third century work, known as Apostolic Constitutions. It's kind of a church manual of sorts. And in that early church manual, they cite these verses of Scripture as evidence for bringing a disciplined church member back 
into the fold. And so if you have writers outside of the Bible who live very close to the time of the original writings, uh, uh, quoting this as part of the canon of Scripture, they are much better authority than the critics of our own day. Number three, some of the later church fathers during the time of Jerome and Ambrose, they also cite it as inspired. Again, these are men who lived much closer to the apostles, and they believed that it was part of the original Scripture. Number four, what you find in this portion of Scripture in no way contradicts other truth found in the rest of the Bible. It only complements that truth. Number five, what we find in this section corroborates with Christ himself, with the way he taught about forgiveness and the way he dealt with people, even his own attackers. Number six, it fits perfectly into the writing style of the Apostle John. Understand that when the writers of Scripture were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, as Peter states, and wrote the final inspired autographs that we call the Bible, God did it through their personalities. And so John has a distinctly different writing style from Luke. Luke has a different writing style from the Apostle Paul. Paul different from Peter. Peter different from the writer of Hebrews. Their writing styles came through. And any reader of Greek can see it. And as I read it through in the original, it fits perfectly with what John writes in the rest of his gospel. And then, uh, and let me just say too that it follows his style, not only his vocabulary, but his style of writing. For instance, remember in chapter 5, he uh, healed that man there at the pool of Bethesda. What happened right after he did it? The Lord gave a sermon, remember? We come to chapter 6, and again we find the Lord feeding some 20,000 people. What follows? A sermon. We come into chapter 7. There's another incident that Christ has with his brother. What follows? A sermon. We come into chapter 8. There's this incident with the adulterous woman. And what immediately follows as she leaves that we'll begin to study next time is a sermon. So it follows John's style. And then seventh and finally, those who read it and study and meditate on it, believe that God wrote it. Understand, no council, no church determined what would be inspired. No man determined it. Man simply recognized what God had inspired. And throughout the centuries, the church has always recognized this as divine scripture, and that's why it's in our King James and our New American Standard Bibles and the way that they are. St. Augustine, who was born in 354 A.D., gave a reason, a tradition of his day, as to why some scribes removed this from some of the manuscripts. He said that some who were weak in faith husbands, fearing that their wives would use this uh, portion of Scripture to justify immorality. Now again, he lived a whole lot closer to the day and what took place, and so I think it's a reliable Tradition. There were some legalists, some man who didn't really understand grace or who misunderstood this portion of Scripture and thought that Jesus somehow condoned her adultery when in fact he did not. God is very much against adultery. You know the seventh commandment? He said, you shall not commit adultery. God's Spirit said through the pen of the Apostle Paul, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom of God. Couldn't say it any plainer than he did. In fact, the next verse that's not listed here and says, and such were some of you, but God saved you. The writer of the Hebrews penned these words, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. We can mock God today. We can laugh at His holy standards. We can parade our sin on our movie and television and internet screens. But God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he shall reap. And God plainly says the marriage bed is not to be defiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will indeed judge. Adultery matters to God. And this passage of Scripture through the words of our Savior will confirm that very thing. So I think as we study it very carefully, you'll see that God does not condone this sin. He condemns it, but he also offers forgiveness. Now with those comments, let's dig into the portion of Scripture that we want to address. Three major considerations that I've given you there on the back and your note-taking outline in your bulletin. The very first thing I want you to see concerns the time. We're introduced to the time of the events with the last verse in the seventh chapter. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. Originally, the Bible was written on scrolls, and so if somebody had a scroll and you're studying with them, they'd say, well, why don't you turn the scroll about, oh, 45 times, and you'll be about where I am. Kind of hard to find your way. Eventually, the Bible was written in books, and people would say, ah, it's about 10 pages in, and then someone about a millennium after the Bible was complete said, why don't we add chapter divisions? And later someone said, why don't we add verse divisions? And so there are tools, they're not inspired, but they're helpful tools to help us find our way around the Holy Scripture. But sometimes they can be distracting because this passage of Scripture really begins with the last verse in chapter 7. Notice what he says, and everyone went to his home. On that last day of the feast, Jesus stood up. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Gave that great sermon. And when it was all over, everyone went to his home. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they went home. Nicodemus went home. The temple guards went home. The people of Jerusalem went home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Everyone had gone home for that last great night of Thanksgiving, that last great feasting night. But no one invited Jesus to their homes. He went that night and spent the night on the Mount of Olives. Now that's the way it is sometimes, and the servant isn't different from the master. If you live for Christ, sometimes you'll be left out by purpose. You may even be ostracized at times because there are people who will be uncomfortable with having you in their presence. And so, much like Matthew wrote in his account, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Furthermore, we're told here in verse 2, and early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Early the next morning, Jesus goes back to the temple, and John uses a word that is a technical word that refers to the early, early dawn hours. Even before the sun had risen, there's just a crack of light in the sky, Jesus is there in the temple. 
which by the way is not unusual. Luke records, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. So in spite of the opposition from the day before, the Lord gets up very early. He didn't really care what they thought. He was going anyway. He didn't have a place to spend the night. But the next day, he knew where he was heading to his father's house. And people were coming, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. And so we read, and he sat down and began to teach them. Now, teachers in that day, because they didn't preach for 15 or 20 or 40 minutes, but for hours on end, very often would sit down and the people would sit all around them. And so it was a common position when they preached. According to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, the Sermon on the Mount was given while Jesus was sitting. I've yet to see a movie capture that. They always have him walking around through the crowds. He was sitting as he gave that sermon. In the upper room discourse in chapter 13 of this gospel, he was sitting when he gave that sermon. When we come to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is sitting when he gave it. So John's just noting a custom of the day, and in mentioning that he is sitting, he is emphasizing that he has the authority to teach. In addition, I want you to notice not only the time, but the trap. Notice now verse 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, as the Lord is teaching the people in the temple, there's a ruckus going on outside. And into the temple court come these scribes and Pharisees dragging a woman, and right in the middle of the circle where Jesus is teaching, sitting down, they drop this woman in front of her. And John mentions here the scribes, which, by the way, is one of the reasons the critics say, well, this is not inspired, that John didn't write it, because they say John never mentioned scribes anywhere else in his gospel, where the other gospel writers mention them all the time. Well, it is true that John doesn't mention the scribes anywhere else, but does he have to? I mean, it's quite appropriate for him to mention them here, because the scribes were the so-called experts in the law. They were the men who copied the scriptures. Now, their whole fellowship developed during the time of the Babylonian captivity. As you read the Old Testament, you always want to ask, at what time frame in Israel's history is the writer addressing? When the kingdom's united, when it's split, what time frame? And of course, if you remember, the kingdom was divided, 10 northern tribes, two southern tribes. The 10 northern tribes were carried away by the Assyrians. Some years later, the two southern tribes by the Babylonians. When they were carried away, they could no longer go to the temple for 70 years. And so the whole synagogue system developed, and a group of men who copied the scriptures, known as scribes, began to develop. And of course, the first scribe that's noted in the Bible is a man by the name of Ezra. You know of him. They're also referred to in the Gospels as the lawyers. They're also called the teachers of the law. And these men who were copiers of the scriptures became its teachers. And they're mentioned in the other gospels typically quite negatively. The Lord reveals their hypocrisy because the things they copied, they didn't obey. And so they take this woman caught in adultery with the Pharisees. They team up together. They have a common enemy and they come and bring this woman to the Lord. Now, I can picture her. Maybe her shoes are off. Maybe her clothes are all messed up. Her, her hair is a mess. 
And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, the adjective to adultery, one word in the original, in the very act, referred to a thief who was caught in the very act of stealing. And so in using this particular Greek word, literally, they pulled this woman off of her partner. And she is identified as having committed adultery. Again, a specialized word that is used of a married person having an extramarital relationship. She's married. And she's not taken to her husband, that might have been appropriate to do, or taken to the elders of Israel, to the Supreme Court of Israel. Instead, they bring her to the temple to where Jesus is teaching. Now, adultery is a violation of the seventh commandment, and it was a serious breach of God's law. And these scribes and these Pharisees see this as an opportunity, as an opportunity to bait the Son of God. They don't simply want the woman... They want Christ. They're after bigger game. They're after the one who, quote-unquote, breaks their Sabbath. The one who claims to be from heaven. The one who claims exclusively to have the power to give eternal life. This one, that's the one they're after. Not simply this woman. She is just part of the trap. And so they haul her into the temple. They push through the crowds. They place her in front of the Son of God. Can you imagine how humiliating it was for her to be there in the eyes of all of the national leaders, for her to be before the eyes of that crowd that came to listen to the Savior, and for her to be before the eyes of the sinless Son of God. Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, clearly, it's a prejudicial charge because it takes two to commit adultery, and to be caught in the very act, I immediately ask, where's he? Now, some have suggested that this was a set-off. They could be right. Some have suggested that they got this fella to commit adultery with this woman so that they could indeed catch them. I think it's rather, his absence is probably as conspicuous as her, her presence here. It's not by accident. I mean, think about it. When someone wants to be immoral, it's something they hide. It's something they go behind closed doors to do where no one can see them. I think, if anything, this probably is a trap. In either case, they're trying to trap the Son of God. Now, notice, if you will, verse, nine, uh, verse 5. Now, in the law of Moses... Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? These coarse-minded men who come and say, we got her in the very act, remind the Lord Jesus of what the law of Moses said. The law of Moses said, stone her. What do you say, Jesus? Now, you is emphatic in the original. You, Jesus, you there, what do you say? That's the thought. And when he hears this word adultery, he is aware of what a serious crime it is because according to the Old Testament, according to the Torah, the first five books, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, God specified for three things capital punishment. Murder, idolatry, and adultery. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. 
and requesting program John 024. Don't forget that tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search of Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. Also, check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. You can also listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. We hope that you will join us next week as we continue to search the scriptures.